Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Lucy Talks. I'm your host Lucy Woodward and I'm so excited to have you listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoy it. conversations about things that really matter in life from climate change to confidence from mental health to happiness i hope this podcast helps you find something you're looking for hi guys and welcome to this week's episode of lucy talks i hope you're excited i am so excited to share this week's episode with you i think this might be one of my favorite conversations i've ever had which i know is probably gassing it up but honestly i just felt so inspired at the end of it i felt like i could really do whatever I wanted to and felt very motivated and excited for the future which honestly is just a great way to feel at the end of a conversation. So the conversation was as you will have seen from the title with Dr Mary Black. She is an international public health leader, a writer and a medical doctor and she's had so much experience in a huge range of different roles from setting up a medical evacuation program in Sarajevo during the war in the 1990s to years of clinical experience as a doctor and then also during the pandemic she was the leader of the public health response to Covid in Scotland. So yeah just a few few things that she's worked on um, but no I'm really really grateful to Mary for coming on and giving up her time and I think it's an amazing attitude that she has coming towards the end of her career that she really wants to put energy into kind of mentoring and like building up the future of leadership which is really really I think just inspiring and I definitely felt very inspired as I've said by this conversation so hopefully this will be really interesting if you're in your early 20s and you're kind of trying to decide what career path to go down, feeling a bit overwhelmed or like you don't have much power, I think this conversation will really help you switch your mindset on that and it definitely has for me. And I think this is a conversation I'm gonna keep coming back to and reminding myself of, so very, very grateful for it and I'm really excited to share it with you. So if you have any thoughts after listening to the episode, please get in touch and let me know what you think at lucytalks underscore on Instagram and yeah very excited so without further ado I'll let you get into the episode thank you for being here and enjoy hi Mary thank you very much for coming on the podcast this week how are you doing well um I think I'm okay I'm just getting over COVID so uh I think like many people it's caused uh some disruption and interestingly for me it's my um, brain seems to be working differently it's quite a lesson really isn't it that um, COVID has actually caused quite a lot of not just physical consequences for people but mental issues Mm. as well yeah absolutely I think during the pandemic especially the conversation of mental health came up quite a lot but it's interesting that you've noticed that as a an effect of COVID itself as well it is, and and uh, I think we're understanding the science of that better, and we're learning about not just changes in the brain, but on social sciences, changes in society, and they've used the word the big reset, and in some ways it is. So today we're talking about lessons for climate change. I think people 
realized with COVID there could be a mass mobilization of society and there were consequences for that. Uh, it, it caused disruption, it caused uh, huge effects on the economy, effects on our social interaction as well. We're still we're still feeling that. Mm. But it's also happening with climate. So climate's a slower burn in a way on that, but look at what's happening with migration, insecurity of food and uh, weather. It is a moment of reflection, isn't it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of mass mobilisation point that you touched upon, I think that's really important because it has kind of shown people that that there can be huge societal shifts in like perspective on different things and we kind of saw lots of protests for the Black Lives Matter movement during the pandemic and yeah all of that kind of concept of being able to actually make a change which I think is a really positive thing. So our, our paths have crossed thanks to the Net Zero Scoping Project which I was working on over the summer um, doing my summer internship and that's a project that you are the chair of the scientific advisory board for. Um, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed being part of that project. Um, and we'll kind of, we can kind of come back to that later, I think. But first of all, I wanted to start with the pandemic as we already have done. And you're a medical doctor, you have been heavily involved and led the public health response in Scotland. And I'd love to kind of ask you about what your role was during that the lessons that you learned and your experiences in in doing that yes when the pandemic hit I was actually in Norway at a conference um, with my husband who's also a doctor and uh, they were busy shutting down Norwegian airspace and there was a feeling of we have no idea what's coming next and we both said we will do whatever we're asked to do first and uh, for me, it was to lead up the, all the clinical and public health side of the new Scotland's new public health agency, which some genius decided to launch on April the 1st of the year of a pandemic. So it was a mad dash to Scotland to try and expand the team, uh, work out what was the most useful thing to do and sit alongside government as scientific advisors and also a huge effort to... Um, try and work out what the evidence was, the emerging evidence. Um, so that was my role. My The end result was expanding a team to over 400 and l- trying to use the opportunity as well to build better services for later. Because in my experience, I've done a few emergencies now. When you're in the middle of it, you think it'll never end, but you know it will. Mm. And afterwards, the attention and money will go elsewhere. So the biggest lesson for me is always think of the footprint of an emergency, what you're going to salvage in terms of um, things you can build for the future. Mm. It's hard. It's really hard to do that because you're so busy. I mean, I was working eight hours a week on stage, most of the stages, actually. But you have to keep an eye to the future. Yeah, definitely. So what are the um, other emergencies that you've worked on in the past? Um, I I guess the biggest one was the war in what was Yugoslavia. Mm. So I was embedded throughout that war with um, the various medical and public health programs. So I set up the evacuation program for the UN for the medical evacuation program from Sarajevo during the siege and was also involved in coordinating 
response teams and emergency supplies across all of the countries. Um, and I then went back to raise my kids in that area. Uh, so I saw the whole phase through. I'm watching Ukraine at the moment, thinking, you know, hopefully some way will be fine to stop the actual conflict and then there will be a massive job rebuilding. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I that sounds like a very hard hitting thing to work on as well, just from a mental health, like personal point of view. Yes. And I didn't, at the time you don't realize it. And during that time, that was the nineties, people talked about mental health a lot less Mm. and there wasn't support for, or even awareness of aid workers, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder was coming in as a concept and trauma psychology which is a term I find difficult I find a lot of it is um, people coping with difficult situations with consequences it happens in our day-to-day lives as well Mm. so understanding how that fits into how you build yourself as a person and how you respond later and also how you um, the intergenerational effects of things so most most people who go this go through these events uh, want to either forget them or get some sort of recognition for what has happened yeah or use them in some constructive way they want to regenerate or they want to to find a legacy from that Mm. that's what i have to do I write about these things and, and that's something I've come to in the last 15 years. Yeah. Worked. Yeah. And it's interesting that you touch on legacy from that personal point of view, because I think that's similar to what you were saying about the, like considering the footprint as you're dealing with an emergency and trying to create some long lasting change. So I guess yeah. what was that when you were dealing with, with COVID was that kind of the PPE and the throwaway plastics or was it more of a like a different issue we failed on that front I wrote I wrote one piece during it saying you know I I, I'm involved in creating this big plastic mountain I don't want to be uh, the imperative as it always is you think there is an imperative which is to save lives immediately but the consequence of that were to create a massive intractable plastic problem and not only that but the whole the whole movement in healthcare has been towards use of disposables the things i used to use when i was doing surgery were autoclaved and reused all all of these things are thrown away now except in very poor countries where they tend to reuse things but the whole kit you would have around you when you're doing surgery in all our hospitals now in the UK is pretty well thrown out afterwards. So there's a massive issue with medical waste. And it's hard to know what to do with that. It's a wicked problem because you don't want infection and bloodborne infections. You don't want to transmit to the next person. And it is safer to throw it all out. However, we can't continue like this. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of if you've if you've got that emergency situation and obviously that was a necessity to to use PPE in that time to save people's lives but then the longevity of that just doesn't that you can't do that for, forever so that's kind of another mm-hmm. link I guess between the climate crisis and COVID which I think there are so many of. If the longer because I believe it is that the crisis now is will our planet be habitable 
Will we have secure weather, food supply? Uh, can we live on this planet? And that is beginning to hit now, but it's going to be future generations. So how do we reconcile immediate threats and immediate issues with the more lo- longer term ones? Because if we don't, there isn't a solution. So uh, we failed. My my generation has failed to take these on board. We're beginning to wake up now, but the consequences will be felt by your generation and, be, and beyond. Mm. I think it's a complete crisis of leadership on our part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's hard to... You, you kind of spoke about that, putting blame on your own generation. And I think... From my point of view, there is definitely that narrative, but also like the, the benefit of hindsight, I guess, is quite nice. It is. And, and I remember back to that, my experience working in the, the war in Bosnia, I remember thinking it passed my mind after this is done, we need to rebuild schools. And there will be kids who are disabled after this war. And and then when I when they when I came back and the school building had started, I realized you know nobody's put in disabled access to the mm. blueprint, and we put huge amounts of aid money into this. This has all been built by foreign money. That was an easy fix. Now they're re- they have to be retrofitted, or in fact they won't be retrofitted. So that was a lost opportunity. So I think it's about thinking more broadly. What as you do something, what can you do that will give you a better next step. Um, how do you blend these two things together? And people are beginning to think that way. Uh, it's just we need to put pressure on, ask these questions now, put pressure on decision makers. If we need to decarbonize um, our society, how do we do it now? How do we move to circular economy? How do we actually implement either radical or small changes that will add up to something substantial? I guess now we're at the situation of how do we change the the system rather than just the symptoms, because exactly. it, yeah. you can't like the circular economy thing that you you mentioned. So many issues I believe have been caused by people going after profit and people not having the planet's interests at heart when making what? difficult decisions. And I think going forward, that just needs to be a priority in in leadership, as you as you mentioned. Yeah, sorry, that just went ping. That's okay. <laughs> um, you're right, but pursuing profit's not a bad thing because yeah. profit you can build other things. So uh, this idea that profit's bad, I I learned a lesson about that because I've started two companies and sold both of them. Um, profit's essential. It's not a bad word. It just depends how you make it and what you do with it then mm. and what products you're producing and how. So... That's if you believe in the capitalist model, which has serious flaws. So I'm I'm not going going to go into the theory of the yeah. economic structure. I just know, I mean what we have now in on its own is not going to give us solutions. It may give us technological solutions, but probably not societal solutions. Mm. One book, I don't know if you read have you read The Ministry for the Future? No, I've not. I guess because I'm a writer as well, I look to other ways of communicating messages and thinking and and thinking of solutions this is climate fiction um and it's it's about uh, a thing a bit like the un the ministry for the future is a bit like the un but is responsible for, for future generations not the current situation i find it a book that explores science society 
what could happen with global warming and how the world might respond. So it's a, it's almost like a, in paper form, a future world building exercise about how things might turn out, which challenges you then to think, how would that, it, how would it, how could it be rather than get mired in the problems we have now? How could the future look? Yeah. Like, Absolutely. I think I, I definitely have a brain that works in that way. I've learned. I love kind of conceptualizing and imagining how things could be rather than focusing on all of the negatives. And I guess then I find it frustrating when I see quite a lot of opportunity in this, this crisis that we're in, because mm-hmm. it's, it's hard when people then don't kind of go down the route that I can kind of see would be a good one to go down. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but just in terms of like thinking, it, thinking in terms of hope rather than hopelessness. And this is this is a dire situation. We can't do anything. Yes, if you if you oppose something, it gets stronger in its resistance to you. That's one thing I've learned. So I do believe that there's a place for protest. I think mm-hmm. it's important. I do think shock is important because we're not shocked enough but there has to be a way through this so finding a way to create those paths where action should take and and working out when if you oppose too much does the whole thing just shut down and you can't Mm. move anywhere that's a choice so i think there the book is interesting because it describes it has all the solutions laid out from terrorism it has, and I won't give the story away, but there is a group within it that actually assassinate leaders in the oil industry. And it puts it out there as, is this needed for change? Now, that's shocking. You could put that in a book. Um, but there will be people in the world who believe that's the only way forward. Uh, there are also scientists. There are also politicians. There are also individuals and there are also there are many many layers to this book which is actually how our world works each of us chooses I think where you put your effort I've always been someone who wants to be in the middle of something and try and do something about it and now I guess I want to be helping others do that or calling things out more because I'm now in my 60s and it's time for time for your generation to Mm. leave so something I often feel frustrated about is kind of big oil companies like we just mentioned and people who have a lot of influence who don't necessarily use it to to create positive change um so how would you say is best for people like me to use your use your voice and use kind of actions to push back against push back against people who have a lot more influence than you? Um, Two things. One is they were once you, so they went on a path and they have influence now, but there was a time when they didn't. So study how they got there. The second thing is this idea that you don't have influence is fiction. So you are now in the top 1% of the world in terms of your power, influence, assets, educational ability, health, and future prospects. Mm. You are even where you are right now you lucy woodward as an ma is it ma or msc uh msc yeah you're msc you're already in the top one percent of the world yeah so what moaning about <laughs> <laughs> you have it it's fiction to think that 
it, it's it's like climbing the Himalayas. Uh, you you're somewhere on the Himalayas, but you're not in the foothills. You're somewhere higher up. Mm. And if you wait until you are like those few that have over years and through all sorts of hard work connections, nefarious means, luck, written, risen to the top of what you think is the next peak, I think you'll miss the point. Mm. That's really true. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's right. Um, so over the summer, like I mentioned, I was working on an internship, which was the UKRI's Net Zero Digital Research Infrastructure Scoping Project, which is always such a mouthful to say. Um, mm. But this is a project that I know you're quite involved with. And I wondered, what do you think is the importance of these sorts of policies for for creating like net zero futures and are they doing things quickly enough yes this one is 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 going to potentially has a huge influence it, it's quite specific so it's narrowing itself to digital infrastructure and it is hopefully going to affect the whole of the uk research um infrastructure if it if we can get if we can punch through to get the attention and the follow-up actions mm. that are needed looking at the evidence for change it's got demonstration projects it's building a community it's got a website so people can read online i don't know if you can put that link somewhere yeah in yeah I'll, I'll leave it linked in the description um yeah i just leaned in to say i can chair i don't know all the science but i'm chairing uh some of the scientific advisors there is an interim report already up there which summarizes some of the evidence. I think that's useful to read through. It's a bit of a heavy read, but it's useful. And the final report is that next June. But we're already, as with all these things, you have to build your lobbying structure well in advance to prepare the grant and to make sure it gets heard and not shelved. So we're building the response silos now. That That's really important anything you get involved in you have to in parallel build the next steps you have you have to lobby you have to advocate and go straight into where the influencers and decision makers are and connect to them so that's the other thing I do behind the scenes quite a lot mm. it's learning how to infiltrate those people you mentioned earlier <laughs> yeah definitely and understand um, they need they need you so Pretty well every oil company now, and you can you can pick your moment. Some of us should just absolutely protest against oil companies. Some of us should work with them, move from the inside. Mm. Some should write about them and challenge it. Some should do basic research for alternatives. And you have to pick where you are going to put your influence, and, and it should be at all levels. Yeah, I think I, I tend to, I, like, so, for example, I follow quite a few climate activists online and I then I then get bogged down by thinking oh I need to be doing that as well and forget about the the other things that I am doing which are kind of a lot more subtle but the things that I'm doing like educating myself on on climate change and conversations like these which don't necessarily have as direct an impact but I think like you said there is definitely value in kind of using the skills that you have and the influence that you that you do have to to use that in the best way yeah and and you should take a really honest stock take of it and not put things off I had this scholarship talk to, to Harvard which was my big breakthrough moment um 
I got it because at the time this was 1989, so a long time ago, but women didn't get these things. Northern Irish women certainly didn't get them, and there was doctors tended not to apply. And I got a scholarship to Harvard. And when I was there, I set up the Environmental Action Group at the School of Public Health because I was just shocked at some of the things I saw. Mm. We weren't researching. Excellent. But what I didn't do was I was I could have gone for president of the Students' Union. I thought, oh, I, I won't do that. I'll be too busy. I'll do my environmental activism. And I helped a guy get it. And he was promised the world was too busy, did nothing. And I should have just done it myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, this, this particularly women tend to do that. And scientists tend to do that. We tend to do the good things rather than the powerful things. And I regret that. And I tell everyone now, if you get an opportunity to lead, doesn't matter what it is, just take it. And don't wait till you're good enough. That's, I think that's a big one for me. I, I think I, how do I wear this? I tend to wait until I feel confident enough to do it, like you just said. And that point just never really comes. So. It'll never come. Yeah. I was never, I wasn't ready to lead the public health COVID response in Scotland. I knew nobody there. I had no connections. Uh, I had no idea what, you know, you, you, you think that leaders know all the answers when they're senior, but they don't. They're mm. just like they do their best. And uh, the other thing is gender. So um, women in general, we know this from research. They wait until they're good enough or ready and perfect before they apply for something. And it's one of the reasons they don't. Whereas men will just have a go. And yeah. That's a huge generalization because not all women and not all men are like that. And we've also got the whole intersectionality of people from minority groups. By the way, people from minority groups are not in a minority somewhere else. It's a term we use when they're in the minority here. Mm -hmm. I'm in the minority in China, even though I'm white. So yeah. we, we put these labels on ourselves and on what a leader should be. And the first thing you need to do is tear those labels up. So if you've torn those labels up, what would be your way to describe what a good leader should be um it's it's changed over time i thought you had to be very wise and perfect i think it's someone that has enough authority that people will listen to and more and more it's authority from who you are as an authentic person as well as institutional authority it definitely helps if you've got a title or our place somewhere but it's not enough so for the kind of things we're talking about, which is wicked problems with no immediate and the world heading off a cliff, the leadership is required. It's much more complex and it needs to happen at every level. So if we wait for world leaders to do this, we won't get the answers we need. What we'll get is lots of summits, which we're getting now. Mm. They're only part of the solution. So we need leaders in, in the activist groups, writers, scientists, the basic science. We just don't know enough about it right now. We'll need more science communication, which I know is something you're interested in. Artists, people who cross boundaries and, mm. and, and people who don't look like everybody else. 
they're different. We need neurotypical, atypical people. We need we, it's it's no longer a simple model of leadership at all. I think in the end, it's someone who's willing to just stand up and say, "I'll have a go at this." Yeah, yeah, I love what you say about crossing boundaries and kind of just not caring too much about the the divisions and the yeah, the labels, as you said before, that we tend to put a lot of emphasis on. Mm. I think this is the way the world's going. So we now, if I compare when I was your age, very few people went to university. There was a limited range of options. You did things in a certain order in your life, you know, and, and it was a steady progression, either up, sideways, but there were no backward jumps. Mm. It was it was a sense of you had to climb a hill. Now, the options are much broader. They're almost bewildering. So you can choose to study at any age. You will have to, in fact, keep updating your knowledge in some ways. The yeah. traditional models are essentially busted, I think. This gives you freedom and maybe a bewildering choice. And also you have an uncertain future. A lot of the jobs people are going for now did not exist when I was making my choices. Yeah, bewildering choice stands out to me. That's an interesting, interesting yeah. phrase. And I think that is something that I know a lot of my peers also feel um, because quite a few of us or quite a few of my friends have already graduated. But then those of us that are graduating next summer, there's this sense of, well, what next? We've been in education all our lives. There's so many choices. But yeah, like you said, you can you can change. And if you go down one path and you, you don't really like it, then I guess there are a lot more options than there potentially used to be before. I don't think it matters. I think I think the point is to do something and stick at it enough to learn from that thing and not move too quickly and not to move too slowly and to know that it's possible to change. Now, I, I learned this. I'm quite diff different to my peers because I probably change career every 10 years. And I just went back to my medical school reunion over, so that's 40 years since I graduated. And I'm not the same as the others. They're mm. all, they went mostly a much more traditional path and they're now graduating or retiring and playing golf. And my life is just not like that. Yeah. <laughs> But you can, it's, it, it's almost like I, I broke the mold a bit earlier. But if I look now, my concern is that people are too anxious about what they do. I think, firstly, if you're at university, do other things as well, because there's so many people coming out now that look the same. They've all done a degree. If I'm employing people, I will always ask what they've done as well. So if people have had a life outside college or have been involved in student politics or as you are in climate activism, have had internships, have built a business, have a podcast, they're the ones that want to hire. I'm actually not interested in hiring people who've just done a degree unless they're coders, because then I probably want people who just code. But even them, they're not good for the coding bit. They won't be good for leading a coding team. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, a degree alone, uh, 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 don't go to university just to do a degree. 
And if you can take a year off, year in industry is a great program in the UK, but um, take take years off, do other things, just uh, mix it up. Yeah, no, I, I completely think that's good advice. You mentioned about the fact that you can study at any age and you told me before we started recording that you've just started a master's in writing. Um, and so mm. I wanted to ask you, well, like what's the influence of writing in your life you've mentioned it several times throughout this episode but how does uh, it help you well it happened about 15 years ago I suddenly had this absolute urge to write so I ended up writing little opinion columns in the medical press which got got quite a big readership and also they weren't just about they they incorporated medicine and public health with other things broader things in society um, and that morphed five years ago into wanting to write fiction. So what it's led to is I now wish to commit half my time to writing and mm-hmm. talking about writing. And it's got little very interesting things attached to it. So I've, I've written a novel which won the Irish Writers the Irish Writers' Centre Novel Prize last year for unpublished novels. Twelve of us got picked for this prize. I now need to spend time rewriting based on the feedback I have. And it, it's a, a fictional revisiting the big Irish medical scandal. I've written and published a memoir, which was good at processing my war zone mm-hmm. work. I'm writing a longer memoir now. I write short stories. I've just started a master's in creative and life writing at Goldsmith. So that's very cool. I kind of walk in and think I need a new wardrobe. <laughs> and it's like fame academy, but for the arts. <laughs> and this book I mentioned, the uh, Ministry for the Future. Mm-hmm. Um, I open, uh, I was at a, one of my boards. I was at a conference in Iceland, which was all about health data and health coding international conference and i had to convene the panel on the last day and i opened with the chapter of this book yeah. and got everyone to say okay we're talking about coding and health data quality and health services if you are the minister for the future what's your program mm. Mm. is for climate change and how are you going to fix the world and the whole place was electrified it it Fiction and writing cuts through in a way probably nothing else does. Art does that. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I sense I'm really enthusiastic. No, I, I love writing as well. I think I definitely share that enthusiasm. Something mm. like since I was maybe six years old, I've always had the ambition to be an author. And that's kind of <laughs> kind of gone away since I've gone more into the physics. But in terms of it's not been at the forefront of my mind but it's definitely something I would still love to do in the future what do you write or what would you write if you so I always used to write fiction um now recently in the last few years I've done quite a bit of writing for uh, impact magazine which is my uni magazine mostly writing about climate change and science and things um but yeah it's it's exciting yeah, there's a lot of climate writers groups. I'm in one in Ireland that's free to join. Uh, they have a few sessions, I think, due to run. It's run by a visual artist who's also an author, and she she writes beautifully about nature and climate. Mm. And sessions, I, I can send you the link if you Thank want you. for later. You're free to join. 
and they uh, you'll find right climate writers group popping up all over the place a sign of the times I yeah think. yeah um I think there's so much power in it and like you said art as well one of the projects that the net zero scoping project that we've mentioned was a collaboration with the arts and humanities research council and trying to create visual ways of demonstrating the science and I think there's so much so much power in that because for for people who don't have time or aren't interested in reading a whole briefing paper but then can have a look at this this display this exhibition and understand it intuitively I think that's that's amazing I think so we all we all appreciate learn in different ways and we Mm. all absorb information in different ways the number of people who read COP26 papers is minimal so most people get a little digest from the papers some people do most people don't read them at all so how do we how do we translate the science or the debate in ways that people can actually get it yeah Um, it's there's a danger when you are a university graduate is to think even that everyone's reading level is at that level it's not uh, mm-hmm. We have huge problem with illiteracy. We have issues with language. There, there's a certain blindness you can get if you've been through a university that the world thinks like that. And yeah, it's not it's back to you know you're in the top one percent. How do you connect with ninety nine percent of everybody else? Mm-hmm. It's your responsibility, and if you don't try and do it, I think it's a failure of your leadership. That's yeah, there's a pre- there's a definite personal responsibility there. I think if you've got the ambition and the mm. the desire to make some sort of change, then like you said, you've just got to do it. <laughs> do you do you really look at around and think you have no power? I think I'm aware that I'm aware that there are people with a lot more influence, and I I guess the the power that I have I see through. I guess the things that I buy and the actions that I make, which in terms of climate change don't necessarily have that much noticeable difference on their own. But then obviously when you scale it up to the society, it does have a big impact. Um, so I guess I'm thinking of thinking of it more in those terms, but yeah, I, I do acknowledge that I have a lot of privilege and I have a lot of um, opportunities given to me. Yeah. I think that's, and, and, this is the thing to really sit down and look at because you're looking at all these people that have hugely more power than you, but to someone who's just lost their home through a flood in Bangladesh and can't imagine having another one or feeding their kids, mm. they look at you and think you're as far ahead of them. and They may not even know you exist, to be honest. And yeah. But you're an anonymous figure. We are anonymous figures, just like oil executive companies are. And we can't assign to them responsibility of fixing this. Mm. What we can do is try and hold them into account as other people should hold us to account. But to imagine it's in the hands of a select few of imperfect people who happen to have huge amounts of money, wealth and run big companies, I think will lose lose completely. Mm. Yeah. And the the main takeaway that I have from, from like listening and watching climate activists is that they have just taken it onto themselves to create their own power. And that's worked yes. really effectively. But if we look at, I just think one lesson from AIDS, uh, that was the one that hit out of the blue when I was your age and a, a young doctor. Mm. 
and people were not even touching people who are HIV positive. It, there was a huge problem getting them cared for or buried. And the biggest difference, I think, was um, AIDS activists. Mm. And almost the, the science had a huge impact, but also the activism was enormous. And the um, I remember reading, meeting Randy Schultz, who wrote a book um, called And the Band Played On. And he was just an activist and a writer. And he he both named the problem, but he also encouraged me to carry on doing what I was doing mm-hmm. as a doctor. And I felt connecting as a, to activists, I'd found my tribe. And that's the other thing, connecting activists and scientists and politicians. You make these tribes of people who care and they're everywhere. And the question is, how do you how do you connect to your own personal tribe of influencers and you can choose who's in that and you can reach out to anyone you want you'll find them find them in the highest of places the lowest of places and everywhere in between yeah thank you for that um so I have one final question for you which is a question that I ask to everyone that I have on the podcast so the question is what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given oh I've been given so much and some of it I haven't understood until later (laughs) yeah yeah, I was going for a big job. I was going for a professorial job in Australia. Almost, I think I probably did it just to get a holiday in Australia for the interview. But I then got interested in it, setting up a medical school in far north Queensland for rural Indigenous graduates. It seemed important. I asked the taxi driver on the way to the interview and said, OK, this is what I'm going for. And I have no chance of getting it. They have an inside candidate. I'm not Australian. So what is the one thing I could say to the panel to persuade them to give me the job after I've, you know, answered all the questions? How should I leave it? What's your advice? And he said, just say I'll give it a go. Yeah. And I did. And I got the job. Mm-hmm. But everyone roared with laughter when I said it. It's a particularly Australian phrase. They admire someone who will give it a go. You don't know exactly what you're doing, but just give it a go. And there's something, there's something about that. Just give it a go. Yeah. What's the worst thing that can happen? Do you think you'd be any worse than anyone else? No. Yep. I will be taking that advice on board. Thank you. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for giving up your time. And I've loved this conversation. It's been really, really insightful and interesting. And I'm sure that everyone listening will have taken a lot away from it as well. So, yeah, thank you, Mary. Yeah. And thank you. And I, I think, first of all, you're great for doing it. And I'm really interested to see what you do next. Thank you. <laughs> I'm quite I'm quite interested too. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks again. Bye. Bye.